0: Shalom and welcome again to Seekers of Meaning, the podcast and TV arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. Thank you very, very much for joining us today as we attempt to explore some of the issues that impact our communities, our families, and ourselves in this wonderful revolution in longevity. We invite your comments and uh, suggestions to me, Rabbi Address, at jewishsacredaging.com. You can go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com, and um Check us out on as well as the Facebook page. Uh, and again, we welcome your comments, suggestions, and concerns. One of the issues that all of us in some way, shape, or form are going to be dealing with, are dealing with, or will deal with, uh, has to do with our involvement or entrance into the healthcare system. Uh, um let's just say, a challenging entrance into uh, what is a um, variety of mazes and concerns and vocabulary that sometimes can drive us a little crazy. To help us negotiate that and to also really raise some very, very challenging issues as to the current state of our healthcare system, it is with great pleasure that we welcome uh, Michael Connolly, the CEO Emeritus of Mercy Health. And the author of a very, very interesting, challenging, and very, very relevant uh, recently published book called uh, The Journey's End. The Journey's End, uh, subtitled The Investigation of Death and Dying in Modern America. And it's much more than just uh, a conversation about death and dying. Really, it is a conversation about uh, the American healthcare system. And since uh, our generation and the generation ahead of us uh, is intimately involved in many ways we thought a perfect opportunity to have this conversation so michael thank you thank you for joining us hope you're feeling well how you doing i'm
1: doing just wonderful and excited to be here
0: thank you very much again c- uh congratulations on this book it's um it's a it's I- i'm gonna be it for people who may be interested in this uh it it is an intense book it's not an easy light read um Available on Michael, Amazon as well as bookstores. Is that correct? W- what motivated you to write this? I mean, I know you come from a career involved with healthcare issues. Uh, you're still involved with some of it. What was the motivating factor? What was the, what was the thing that pushed you to say, I, ha- I have to put some of this on paper? So
1: um, I spent my entire career trying to fix healthcare. Uh, at least, you know, whatever I could contribute to uh, try innovations, implement new ways of doing things. And I have to say, uh, by the time I retired, I was uh, feeling it was much worse than it was when I started. And that, um, that it just seemed beyond repair. And so I started looking at the reasons why. And initially, some of my focus was on economics and ethics. So I was trying to look at those two elements very intensively. And I discovered that how we care for the elderly is a microcosm for what's wrong with healthcare. And and that becomes, uh, basically, I had a five-year journey of research uh, and writing for this book. And uh, and so I think the secret to not only improving care for the elderly, but also for reforming health care is in the recommendations I make. The other thing that frustrated me is that there are so many books written on end-of-life care, you know, the most famous being Dr. Atul Gawande's uh, Being Mortal. Right. Yet none of them... While they do a wonderful job describing the problem, none of them really look at what caused the problem or what solutions there might be to the problem. And so my focus in the book was to diagnose what the real cause of the problems were, and then secondarily to offer recommendations that could be implemented that would uh, address those concerns.
0: And you do that uh, at the end of the book. I think it's on page two hundred nine. Is an appendix that really just basically says, "Okay, here are some implementable correct uh, solutions, uh, possibilities." That is correct.
1: I mean, the details of those are described throughout the book, but then they're summarized at the end right, with right. definitive recommendations.
0: You you write in the in this book, "Quote: uh, The more sophisticated our society becomes, the more we resist death." The more sophisticated our society becomes, the more we resist death. Walk me through what you're talking about.
1: So um, I, I think that uh, it, you can take it right back to the Enlightenment. And it, it, it is that we feel we control. We increasingly assume we control our lives. And we uh, we think there's a fix to every health problem. And uh, we expect that you will offer us a fix to every health problem. And then I think the Kool-Aid was bought by the health system. They think they could fix every health problem. And um, so what I'm thinking about is that we have a lot less success in treating the elderly than any of us think. And what that has resulted in is a tremendous overtreatment of the elderly. And so I've gone into why. Why does that happen? Well, the number one reason is all of us are afraid of dying. I mean, I'm afraid of dying. Everyone is afraid of dying. But you add to that fear the idea that we can uh, somehow stop that from happening. It's a bad combination. <laughs> Because it's an illusion. It isn't true that you're going to stop yourself from dying. Um, I often refer to a lot of of end-of-life treatment um, as uh, people uh, almost think like they're going to buy lotto tickets and they think they're going to win. I mean, it has about that high a probability uh, for a lot of of things that we do. Then it combines with that fear of death to the fact that um, nobody wants to talk about it, and therefore nobody knows what anybody really wants. Um, so I, I noticed one of the things that uh, you've done, Rabbi, is uh, something at Cedar Sinai with advanced directives, um, and it's a very good piece on helping you have a conversation about what you want. Um, and and so most people just don't want to have that conversation. Um, then you have the belief in medicine that healthcare, uh, views dying as failure. So when you're getting advice from your doctor, your doctor is viewing it as what is the thing I can do to save you? Not maybe what's the best thing to do for you. Um, and, and so you've got that, it's a sense of failure by a physician that if they don't treat you, if they don't come up with some next step to take care of you, they're failing. And, um, and that leads to overtreatment. Um, and then you add to it the insurance world, which pays for all the expensive stuff, but doesn't pay at all for all of the things that could support you in old age that would actually work a lot better. So you can get, uh, transplants. You can get uh, all the time you want in ICU. You can get uh, a high-tech ER visits, but you can't get home care. And you can't get um, uh, basic support to stay at home. Um, and so doctors don't want to talk to you about a natural death. To them, that's not a natural act. Um, and so the system isn't designed to even talk about palliative care or hospice we're
0: we're seeing and we've had several people on the, on the podcast who are really uh doing a tremendous amount of work in trying to uh raise the level of awareness uh reduce the the fear factor but also uh talk about the the growing specialization of palliative care uh i do some work with a local hospice here in southern new jersey uh, one of the recent podcasts we had on, uh, I think in about a month ago was on a, an end of life doula. Um, there seems to be, and I'm, I'm just wondering if you think my sense is that the, the baby boom generation wants to ta- exercise more control even over our own death. And, and so we're a little bit more, west, yes, we're very afraid of dying. B, we don't want to. But see, we want a lot more control, and so we're a lot more willing to have some of these conversations, although it's not, by any stretch of the imagination, universal. Because I, I, I have sensed in this last decade or so, and maybe the pandemic has something to do with this, a greater willingness to have some of, to at least entertain conversations around this.
1: So um, hospice has a big marketing problem and uh for example uh most people do not know that your life expectancy is longer in hospice than it is with active treatment and um and, and so the problem is that everybody now knows about hospice but it doesn't become recommended for patients until all other treatment options have been eliminated, and so the length of stay—the typical length of stay in hospice—is ten days. Whereas, in order to have the hospice experience be meaningful, it should be more like six months. And so, and and that is driven by insurance and economics, uh, because the hospice benefit. Has this insane requirement that a doctor needs to certify you're going to die in six months well, that is just ridiculous because it's it's clinically impossible to predict death six months out and yet Medicare requires that, and so now we overcome that by having hospice hire doctors that do the certification, but that isn't the problem. The problem is that you're Caring physician, you know whatever you're getting cared for, that's the one that has to bring it up, and they're they're just not going to bring up that you're going to die in six months because they still want to try to save you. Um, and 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 so the next problem uh, with hospice is that it doesn't allow you to continue with curative care, meaning any active treatment. You need to literally leave Medicare and join a separate insurance product called hospice. And when you do that, you give up any curative care. Well, that's another reason doctors don't like to recommend it and why patients are more reticent to join until the very, very end. However, there is plenty of evidence to show that if you allowed a patient to have both curative care, in other words, continue with Medicare and beyond the hospice benefit, they actually quickly migrate to the hospice benefit and stop seeking curative care because they see it works much better for them. And and as a result, uh, patients have the mental security of having the care, but they end up not using it because they don't really need it or want it at that point, but they still want the right to do it. So that's the problem with hospice. Now, palliative care has even bigger problems. And that is that palliative care um, doesn't get referrals. In other words, doctors don't call in palliative care. I'll give you um, a great example nephrologist. Uh, So let's say a patient goes into kidney failure. The first thing that's going to happen is they're going to call a nephrologist. Well, And they're going to recommend that you go on dialysis. Well, and I'm specifically referring to elderly patients at this point. Um, But actually, for all patients, the average time on uh, dialysis is one year. So what you're really doing is postponing your death. And a lot of these dialysis treatments are in ICU or whatever. Um, But they should have a palliative care consult before the nephrologist, and, and and so then the patient more objectively looks at: Do I really want to go on dialysis? And they can really more clearly articulate their goals, and the family can understand. So, palliative care finally is not reimbursed by the system. Um, we have a massive short. There is no outpatient palliative care, and actually, palliative care should be. Uh, part of uh, outpatient care significantly. You should have those conversations, ideally even filling out your advanced directive with a palliative care doctor or a nurse palliative care person uh, rather than going to a lawyer's office. So those are all barriers. And, and the result is that while hospice is being used more, it's not being used well. And um, and then finally, the problem with hospice is the way we pay for it. Hospice is probably the simplest service in healthcare. There is not a lot of complexity with the care. And we've decided to pay it through our coding system. Our coding system is the number one problem in healthcare. It's way too complicated. and it does two things. One, it distracts caregivers from caring for you because they have to spend all their time meeting the coding rules. And and secondly, it is so complicated that um, it invites fraud. And so that's why the for-profit sector has taken over hospice because they know how to make money off it by manipulating the coding system.
0: Michael, and again, we're talking to uh, Michael Connolly, CEO Emeritus of Mercy Health, the author of The Journey's End, uh, subtitled The Investigation of Death and Dying in Modern America. Um, Michael, you alluded to a little bit before um, this issue of control. And um, is this a particular American phenomenon, this where patient autonomy and uh, personal autonomy it seems to be like ingrained into the American DNA. How much of this uh, um, gets in the way of really human treatment? Um, I want this. I want that. I want that. As opposed to saying, you know, this is, this is what's happening. So it, it is a
1: problem, but I think the bigger problem is that you don't know what you're getting. And so you might ask for it, but you don't understand what it is. And uh, there's a a lot of research that has shown that um, when a patient is informed about what a lot of their treatments are, they choose not to have them. So there's a Dr. Uh, Angelo uh, Valandez at Harvard that has an institute. That's devoted itself specifically to this issue, and um, he's done research that shows that if you just ask a patient whether they want treatment uh, for whatever the crisis is, ninety um, percent of the time they say yes, I want to get you know the curative treatment, even though it might have limited possibility, and then he shows them a video of what the treatment and what their life is going to look like with the treatment. They flip 100% the other direction, and they go to only 10% want to continue with the treatment, 90% do not. And so that caused him to develop videos on all different end-of-life care uh, situations if if this could be on the internet, it it would be a wonderful thing to educate people about making informed, you know, do I wanna go on dialysis? Do do I wanna go on a, a lung machine? Uh do I want a feeding tube? You know, you don't know what you're saying yes to, but after you watch the video, you do know what you're saying yes to. The problem is, and I kind of uh this is my personal opinion, uh Dr. Valenda's wife is an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's convinced, I think, by her that he would be liable if he gave these videos out to the public. And so the only way he distributes the video is to a doctor's office. And he goes around the country trying to get doctor's offices to have these videos. Well, it's a total bust because no doctors are interested in having videos to say you shouldn't get treated. <laughs> and and so uh but it's very sad there's there's also a major project done um at a, a system called the Gunderson Health system which used videos and used uh nurses and social workers to help patients complete their advanced directives
0: right it's out of minnesota uh, it's it? out of
1: wisconsin it's uh, Eau Claire, wisconsin and um they got 95% of the population in that health system to use advanced directives. And um, everybody was very happy with the care. Um, and um, the economics didn't work for anybody else because they happen to have a health plan that helped fund the use of the people to do all that work.
0: Right, right. It's a c- closed system.
1: And the other healthcare doesn't have it, so it it doesn't get spread across America because they aren't in closed systems.
0: So let me you raised a couple of interesting. I want I want to ask you about number one, and there was another AARP thing that came out a, about a month or so ago about another survey. Talk to me a little bit about the inequality of access to healthcare vis a vis socioeconomic Uh, conditions, locations, racism. That's a reality still, is it? Well, it is a reality, correct? And how in the, how in God's name do you begin to overcome that in the, right now in the way we're structured? So, um, again,
1: it's an education issue. Um, and people don't understand what they're, uh, wanting. Um, and so it's, uh, Particularly uh uh significant in the Hispanic and black population. The black population, because of the sort of the history of the Tuskegee research, uh, the last thing they want is some white person telling them they don't need health care. You know, more treatment isn't a good thing. They're absolutely gonna believe that more care is better care. and and, and so they're they're coping with that sort of historical. Uh, concern about their care. Um, And and so they are much lower users, for example, of hospice than any other race. Um, The other is the healthcare system isn't designed to recommend this care. And so the only way it does get used is by more knowledgeable people that are familiar with it and ask for it. And so that's another reason, uh, for that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. It's an opportunity to educate everyone. Uh, right now, if you want to die at home, you got to do a lot of things to make that happen on your own because the health system will not let you die at home. You'll be going in the ER and then you're going to go from the ER, to the ICU, and then you're going to die in ICU. You, You have to know how to stop that from happening. And, um, that's some of the thing I talk about in the book.
0: Yeah. Uh, you, Ray, you, you allude to something else I want to ask you too. Uh, it's the middle of June. Uh, there was a, a rather interesting and somewhat disturbing article in the New York Times Sunday magazine, uh, exactly on some of the issues that you're talking about in the book. And um, the article really put a spotlight on the corporate, I guess if I can use the term, the corporatization of American delivery of, of health care in the United States of America, where, quote, it prioritizes profits over patient care. It prioritizes profits over patient care. Um, how true is that?
1: Well, I think it uh, has a misdiagnosis. And it really is the codization, if there is such a word, of health
0: What does that mean? What what does that mean to code? You can't
1: get paid for anything in healthcare without it being coded. And the coding system um, is unable to appreciate what's referred to as cognitive care or non-procedural care. In other words, a conversation. So doctors are no longer paid to talk to their patients. They're no longer paid to talk to one another. And if they want to make a living, they have to minimize their conversations. They have to just do things, you know, order tests, analyze tests, do procedures. That's the only way they can make an income. And the specialties that are most dependent on cognitive care are all of primary care. So your internist, your family practitioner, your palliative care doctor. Even your hospitalist, they depend most significantly on getting to know you as a patient, talking with you. This is why concierge medicine has become so popular. Patients knew they weren't able to talk to their doctors, so they doctors were frustrated and they started their own concierge practices. But the problem with that model is that it's like 1% of the population can afford it. Actually, all of America should have concierge medicine. And, and so this coding system um, is also very, very complex. And it's so complex that health systems and doctors don't know how to do their own coding. And 10 years ago, there was no industry called revenue cycle management. Now there's a whole industry that comes into your practice or your hospital and does your billing because they know how to do the coding. How big is that? Last year, U.S. healthcare spent $140 billion on revenue cycle services. As a point of reference, the entire U.S. auto industry is $100 billion. And that doesn't count all the money they're spending on their own building systems. So, and then the last point with that is that complexity uh encourages fraud. And so it's easy to manipulate. You can say, oh, I didn't know that or it was too complicated. And so it's better to manipulate it and then defend yourself. And that's where the profit thing comes in. People take advantage of that. Um, and, and so, um, basically the way we pay for healthcare is the problem and that encourages, uh, you know, it isn't like these people don't want to care for you. It's like they want to care for you, but the payment system won't let them. And so, and that's why they're depressed right now. Doctors spend 47% of their time coding and administrative work. And 29% of their time seeing patients. That's why they're depressed. That's why they're leaving. Right. Same thing with nurses. Right. And, and so it is, but nobody knows that the cause of this problem is coding. And, and, and then coding is the one that, you know, uh, makes it easy to manipulate the system for profit.
0: So is the single payer system the the great panacea that people talk no, about? No, because you it know, does, does know, the, I mean, problems. you know,
1: Medicare uses coding. Medicare helped invent coding. So if you don't fix ah. coding, you won't fix anything. It it is um it is the way we pay for it. And so Medicare is the as bad as anybody with coding.
0: So in and, and as we wrap the wrap up, because we're going to run out of time, what you've outlined this here and in the book, this complexity. So what advice do you give us? How do we get out of this mess, Michael?
1: Well, um, I think that the, uh, first is that you need to take more control of your own healthcare. And, um, you need to, uh, educate yourself about what you want in end of life and it, it it's not that hard to self teach yourself a number of these things um you know second is it's important who your doctors in hospital and your hospice are you need to get right. people you trust and people that will talk to you um and um that are interested in in your preferences of care um and, and so Uh, And you need to be assertive about that. You need to bring up your advanced directives in, you know, for the last, you know, when you've hit that point where you think, all right, I got five or 10 years left, you need to be bringing that stuff up whenever you're meeting with your doctor.
0: And to make sure that everybody that, you know, we, this is part of the stuff that we teach, that everybody you would have in contact with, has copies of that not only your doctor your clergy family so because you never know you just we just don't know when you'll need to access that and so um the worst thing is i've i've, I've talked to people and they'll say well, yes yeah, so i put my advanced directive in the safe deposit box i said well that's meaningless you know because god forbid you're alone you need it how are they going to get it so so yes,
1: getting it in your electronic record, but unfortunately, in the electronic record, it's buried. And so, you know, I've I've actually tested my primary care doctor and said, could you please bring up my uh, uh pull up my advanced director? They can't find it.
0: So talk to me very fast before we conclude about the ad- advisability, because we're seeing a lot of this now and the necessity of the pulse form, the P O L S C the Physician's order for life sustaining treatment. Uh,
1: that, that's a, a wonderful adjunct to a, uh, um, an advanced directive, uh, but it's uh, fairly esoteric. I mean, you know, one thing everybody can do that's fairly simple is spend some time thinking about how they want to be cared for and videotaping it on their phone. And so then rather than having to find this advanced directive, you just pull up that video from the patient. 'Cause you're gonna be out of it when this is going on. And and, and so but if your if your caregiver has it, they can say, Look, no, they don't want any of this stuff. Here's the video to prove it.
0: So, Michael Connolly, uh the author of The Journey's End, uh an investigation of death and dying in modern America. Thank you very, very much. Good luck with the book. Well, thank you. Uh thank you very much for joining us today on today's edition of Seekers of Meaning and um uh, lots to think about, lots to contemplate, lots of work for us to take care of, Michael. So thank you.
1: Well, it, you'll have a happier end of life if you pay attention.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Um, to all of you, thank you as well for joining us in the pleasure and the uh, of, of your time today. We really are very, very grateful for your time. Again, if you'd like to make a comment, a suggestion about uh, Seekers of Meaning shows or ideas email me, address at jewishsacredaging.com. If you'd like to support um, the work that we do and continue the work for these podcasts and the website, just go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com. Go down to the conveniently located donate button and just follow the prompts. And if you'd like to become a sponsor to these podcasts, just also email me at address at jewishsacredaging.com com seekers of meaning is produced at the broadcast center of the media companies in cherry hill new jersey and as usual a shout out to our producer steve lubeckin thank you very much for joining us until the next time we meet on seekers of meaning take care everyone stay safe stay healthy and most of all be kind to one another thank you very much shalom